This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm your host, Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with one of the best-known chefs in the world and the talented son who's following in his footsteps. Back in 1982, Emeril Agassi famously took over from Paul Prudhomme as executive chef at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. And after an incredible run there, he decided to open his own place, Emeril's, in 1990. Now more than three decades on, his son EJ, at age 21, is chef patron, revisiting dishes his father made famous and updating them with his own unique spin. We'll talk about all that, as well as the magic of New Orleans, their over-the-top holiday food traditions, the ways their Portuguese heritage informs their work, and how Emeril is teaching a new generation about the power of food. A word of warning, this episode will make you hungry. Emeril and EJ Lagasse, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for Delighted having us. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Where am I reaching y'all right now? We're in New Orleans. Yeah. Okay. We are right down the street from the restaurant. We're right above Merrill. Okay. Probably always good to have the restaurant close by, especially for yeah. you, EJ. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> so, Emeril, what's the best thing that you've eaten recently? Well, I'll tell you, the last couple of weeks, been spending a lot of time with the reopening of Emeralds. So I've been tasting all the dishes. And I'll tell you what, I'm really, really happy with the direction that we're moving into and going towards. And the food is really delicious. It's thoughtful. It has a lot of depth, really great flavors, using a lot of local farms and fisheries. So reopening has been really great. Is there a dish that stands out for you or that's kind of top of mind right now? Well, I think they're doing a dish right now that's a quail that's raised from a local farmer in Mississippi. And it's sort of the leg is slightly deboned and then stuffed with a Portuguese lache with my mom's dressing inside of the leg. Nice slices of the breast, perfectly cooked, incredible sauce, two sauces, actually. I think that there's a lot of dishes that stand out right now, but that's one that's really striking. Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Of course, when you have the quality of the quail that are being raised for us, it's really... It makes pretty, our jobs pretty easy. Yeah, pretty <laughs> magnificent, actually. Yeah. Well, the last time I saw you both was in New Orleans, and it was with Alan Shia in the lobby of the Four Seasons Hotel. And I was just thinking about your connection to New Orleans, and EJ, especially you. Talk to me about that city and what it's taught you about food, and especially when you're a kid, you know, kind of growing up in that environment. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most well-known and highly regarded restaurant locales in all of the world, right? You can't have a bad meal in New Orleans. Whether you're getting po'boys around lunchtime on a Tuesday, or you're out to dinner or in the lobby of the Four Seasons, wherever you may be, you're not going to have a bad meal. I think growing up in that environment and constantly being in the city and being around our restaurants, I was lucky enough that we got to travel a bit when I was a kid and I got to compare sort of restaurant scene and food scene around the world to New Orleans. New Orleans was always my base point of like what good food was. I think that when people from New Orleans get to travel, they got a decent understanding of what to look for when it comes to a really great dining experience. 
Well, you're definitely a little spoiled growing up there. And yeah. just like you said, every place you go, no matter what hour of the day, there's always something great to eat. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> for me, you know, it started in the early 80s. I knew of New Orleans and read of New Orleans being such a great food city. But then when I came here in the early 80s to take over Commander's Palace after Paul Prudhomme, of course, Paul was already a legend at that time, and not just with Black and Red Fish, but just as a creator of K-Pauls, et cetera. And so taking over Commander's Palace and having a mentor like Ella Brennan and Dick Brennan, of course, really opened a whole different world for me of what food really was in the world. And a great bit of that was right here in our backyard, right here in New Orleans. And so I joke a lot of times with people and say, you know, the thing about Ella, Ella had a tremendous palate, very worldly, traveled, a really incredible restaurateur and mentor, but she couldn't boil water. And we would have these sessions on Saturdays to just talk about food for an hour or two and how we were going to take dishes and sort of creolize them. But like EJ said, the people here in New Orleans, it's part of their heart, their soul. Absolutely. And when you get that, you can't shake it loose. You know, we have a long-standing franchise at Southern Living. Well, it's about seven or eight years old now, and we ask our readers what their favorite restaurant is in the South. Commander's is always at the top of that list. Yeah. It's known all over the South and all over the world. And I think, you know, some of that is definitely has to do with the time you spent there and the attention that you brought to it. But there must also be some sort of magic to that place. They've been doing it for so long, and it's still got a real an excellence to it and a, almost a mystery about it. <laughs> it's also just got a very interesting buzz. You know, a chef mentor of mine who was in town this past weekend, the only place she wanted to go was Commander's Palace. I mean, she obviously came and ate at Emeralds, but the only place she really wanted to go was Commander's. And we went and we had a lovely time. She's like, there's balloons on the table? Why are they? Is it? Like, yeah, you know, it's commanders. This is just the way it's going to be, you know? Right. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It's got this very curious buzz to it that I think a lot of people have tried to replicate, but I'm not sure many have. Yeah, I think it starts from the paint job outside, you know what I mean? It has <laughs> yeah. a very unique <laughs> right. color, uh, the, the building. And then when you enter the building... There are all these little surprises, you know, there's, you got to go through the kitchen if you want to get to the bar and you got to go through the kitchen and the bar if you want to get to the patio room. And then there's the mystique of the patio room. And then you go upstairs and then there's the garden room, which is this glass with these beautiful oak trees and squirrels running in the trees and et cetera, et cetera. You're across the street from a graveyard. You wander, and then, then there's the other room, you know, to the side of the garden room. And then the main dining room. It's a really sort of a mystery kind of place that sort of sucks you in. It's also so massive that it's a bit of a maze. Right. You, you right. walk around, and you're like, wow, it just keeps going. Like, this right. just keeps getting bigger, this place. Uh, it does. It does. Well, Emerald, I talk a lot about music on the show. I interview a lot of musicians, and you have some history with music as a percussionist. And I'm wondering if your interest in music and cooking have some things in common for you. I think that they have a lot of similarities to cooking and music. I mean, when I'm cooking, I still have music in my head all the time. So, and it probably really drives a lot of people crazy. But that's just the way that it is, you know. I have a lot of musician friends, as you do, so I'm never away from it, and I'm never away from the kitchen, you know. And if I'm not in the restaurant, I'm in the kitchen at home all the time. 
And, and I think EJ, he's quite a musician himself, and he picked that up at a very young age, pretty much self-taught, really. We have a lot of fun. When we can get together and put music together with food, it's a blast for the family, for sure. Well, there's a lot of rhythm to cooking, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everything's got to be on time. It seems like there's a lot of creativity. There's so many things um, that kind of connect between the two. Making people happy, for sure. Uh, yeah. Or at least trying to make them happy, you know. Putting menus together, specifically when they're in a tasting menu format like we have at Emeralds, where you have seven dishes on each of the menus, it's a bit like putting an album together. And when it's we like change, a symphony. Yeah, and when yeah. we change a dish, it feels like putting a new album out. It's yeah. quite fun. Yeah, exactly. Emerald, I want to talk about your mom for a second. You lost your mother, Hilda, I think nine or ten years ago. What kind of influence did she have on you when it came to cooking? Well, that's where it all began. I can remember being seven or eight years old. We had a garden out in the backyard, and I was always on the go and always wanting to do something with the vegetables from the garden. And so the first thing I can remember making with her was a vegetable soup. And then as time evolved and I started cooking more and then went to culinary school and would bring things home to her is when she really opened up about her Portuguese heritage and not only her heritage, but her repertoire of Portuguese food. And so that became another base of influence for me was all of those sort of touches. There's many, but I think if there's one thing that I could say, I think that EJ also got a little bit of that from me and his grandmother. Yes, certainly. He and I are huge fans of Portuguese cuisine and Portugal. As a matter of fact, we just started a project that's under construction right now that EJ and I are doing called 34, me being the third and him being the fourth. We're doing a Portuguese tapas restaurant here in New Orleans uh, the beginning of next year. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we're excited about it. It's going to be good fun. That's great. And what a tribute to her, too. Yeah, it is definitely a tribute well, to her. I mean, the quail dish that you mentioned earlier is right. literally, the reason that I put it on the menu is because it, around this time of year is when traditionally Rochelle would be made because it's a Portuguese sort of like Thanksgiving stuffing. And so he used to make it for Thanksgiving every year back, you know, when I was much younger, my grandmother would make it every year. And so it just was this sort of memory that I had when it became October, November, like the mouth would start watering, waiting for that <laughs> Portuguese stuffing. We were trying to find something to fill this quail with. And I called him and was just like, hey, how do you feel about putting those stuffing on this quail dish? And he was like, that's pretty great. That sounds pretty fun. So not only does her food that inspired him that now inspires me, but it also, I think, just inspired us to get a bit more in touch with the, the roots and uh, attempt some other things. Yeah, for sure. So, EJ, did you have a close relationship with her? Were you able to spend a lot of time with her? Yeah, I mean, because we were here so much in New Orleans, I was able to see her a lot. You know, it's quite funny because my granddad, uh, I don't think I heard him speak until I was probably like 14, uh, 15 she, years she, old. She did all, she the, did all the talking. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hilda was an absolute gem. Yeah, and you speak Portuguese. Yeah, she was a fantastic woman. A good cook. Yeah, great cook. A great cook and really told it like it was, which was probably the thing that I love most because we would be at a family gathering and there'd be a bunch of people talking, something would happen and she'd just let you know. And it was just like, yeah, that's Hilda. <laughs> she'd shut you down right away. Oh, right huh? there, right there. <clears throat> it was none of that. Well, so holidays are kind of around the corner and this episode is going to come out right before Christmas. And 
I'm wondering what some of your favorite family traditions were when it comes to Christmas. I mean, are there certain dishes that y'all love to make? To be honest, I mean, the, the lachey was... The lachey is definitely makes it on every holiday menu. Um, that's the quail? Stuffing that's inside the leg of the quail. It's called yeah. lachey, but it's basically a bread stuffing with Portuguese chorizo and ground pork and trinity and bread and stock, etc. It's very simple, but it's very tasty. You know, we do the turkey thing. I think a few years ago, it started getting a little bit boring to us, especially EJ and I, because it's just another turkey, right? So we started doing turkey roulades for the family. Yeah. So we would make a stuffing and do a turkey roulade with the breast, and then we would come feed the legs, which they were like, what are you guys doing? And well, and, you know, with my mom being from Mississippi and having some, you know, more, I guess, traditional Southern roots in that regard, I mean, then she starts requesting the cornbread and the and like collard greens, the whole thing. Right. So we had to go, and I love it. It's really interesting because I think that our family holidays end up becoming these like, New Orleans, Portuguese, Southern, traditional Thanksgivings or Christmas or things like that. Sometimes we do the seven fishes as a tribute on Christmas Eve. We'll have a seafood salad. We'll have some sort of calamari, some sort of fish, and et cetera, et cetera. And probably half of that is Portuguese influence. Well, then it became a thing where you were doing sweet potato pies, you're doing pecan pies, you're doing apple pie. Because what ended up happening was is we weren't cooking together a lot, especially when I was away. And so if I was back for a holiday, we were just like, all right, man, you're going to make this. I'm going to do this. Let's see what happens here. One year we made like those, remember the ridiculously big pastiche de natas we made, the mm -hmm. Portuguese egg custard tarts? We made like massive ones. And then, you know, going down the whole list of just the classics and just trying to check the box on all the things. And I remember one year we did so much food that we were like calling people to come pick up yeah, food. You start getting in that mode, and and all of a sudden you think you're, you know, instead of cooking for the family, you think you're cooking at the restaurant. Yeah. So right. you know, <laughs> all of a sudden it's like, okay, how did we get four turkeys? We were only yeah. supposed to have two. <laughs> he and I were going overboard. We were making our own stocks. Like it was ridiculous. It almost sounds like it gets a little competitive. No, I wouldn't no. say it was competitive. It was more collaborative, but it was also just like. You handle this stuff and I'll handle this stuff. And then we're just like, oh, I can, of course I can do more. You can do more. Yeah, come on. And it just became that sort of game. It was fun though. Well, you can never have too many leftovers, right? No, 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 no. <laughs> After the break, I'll talk more with Emeril and EJ Lagasse about EJ's decision to become a chef, the ways he's tweaking the menu, and how Emeril's work with kids is leading them to healthier lives and even careers in food. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with world-famous chef Emeril Lagasse and his son, EJ. So, Emeril, I'm curious when you realized that EJ might really have what it takes to become a chef. I mean, I know that he expressed an interest in cooking and was pretty persistent about that, but there's a difference between being a good cook and being able to be a full-time chef, to run a restaurant, to do the whole nine yards. When did you kind of realize, okay, this is real, like he's really got what it takes, I think. Well, the first thing is that he had tremendous foundation, obviously, growing up in the restaurants and being a part of it. And, you know, he'd wander into the dining room and it was natural for him to talk to customers and he'd come back into the kitchen and he'd, he'd want to expedite. Then he really started cooking and... I guess he was about maybe 13, and I, I could be wrong, but in that age area. And um, we were having dinner in New York, and we were doing a tasting menu at Cafe Boulou, Daniel Boulou's restaurant. And he was doing the tasting with us and smelling the wines. And then during the meal, he just kind of stopped his mom and I and said, well, I just want to tell you all that I've figured out what I want to do and what I want to be. And so we look at each other and we're like, okay, what is that? And he said, I want to be a chef. And I said, you really want to be a chef? So as the meal progressed again, uh, we had a conversation to say, okay, look, there's just one thing that down the road that has to happen is that you're going to have to leave the nest and you're going to have to go somewhere else to just to learn more. 15 and 16, he went and worked the summer at La Bernardin, moved to New York, then his mom and I were frightened, and we would check on him, have people check on him, but that's EJ. He lived nearly across the street from La Bernardin, and so we felt safe there, but he did that, and I believe that Eric has really become one of his serious mentors and kind of like a second dad, yeah, and um, he's a fantastic human being. Congratulations to him. He just got three Michelin stars again yesterday. <laughs> That's great. And then from there, he said, I'm going to go to culinary school, Dad. He could have gone anywhere and decided to go to Johnson & Wales, which is where I went in Providence. He sort of aced high school and he aced culinary school, so kind of finished a little bit early in both. And he said, you know, I'm going to move to London and get a job working for Claire Smith at Core, another three Michelin star restaurant. And I think that was tremendous training for him and also became a mentor, not only a friend, but another great human being. And then from there, he just did these little bouts around, went to Lisbon a little bit, and then he ended up at Fransen in Sweden on Claire and her chef's recommendation, came back to London, did little stints here and there, ate a lot, read a lot, which is something that he and I have talked about since he was little, that it's important to do that. And then it was like, okay, it's time to come home. You know that I have this dream that I want to do at Emeralds. It's 33 years old. Let's do it. And we didn't really have many conversations about 
what position. He just came back and he came back into the restaurant. And within a couple of weeks, he was the chef patron and really putting together his team. And it's been an incredible evolution. So EJ, you've learned so much from your dad, obviously, and growing up around food the way you did, spending so much time in the restaurant. Tell me a little bit about how your cooking or your kind of style might be different. How do you describe the direction that you are taking things that might be a little different from what your dad's done? Well, I mean, look, the foundation, I think, is very similar because it's a classic French foundation. And I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but this is just my inference on the benefit of having a restaurant group that's been around for 33 years is we have archives of almost everything. So I can go back and see what he had on a specials menu or on a tasting menu in 1992 on the 3rd of February because it's all on record. So it's a great catalog for me to reference. And I can go back and sort of see where his head was at maybe about some things. And so I think that the idea and the philosophy is very similar. I just think that there's 33 years of difference, and that's the big thing. I think that food styles have obviously changed since 1990. I mean, it was a thing in 1990 to dress the side of your plate with parsley and Creole seasoning. That's just like what everyone did. That's what was in. Nowadays, I'd be wiping the plate because that's not what we're going to do. So I think it's just a modern interpretation. I could be successful in this. I could not be. I don't know yet. But what I like to think is that Emeralds now is a reflection of what Emeralds probably felt like when it opened in 1990. It still has the same ideals and philosophy. My style, although it may appear incredibly different, from his style visually and things like that. I think that it is actually very close to being the same style. It's just presented in a different manner. There was a lot of inspiration for him, obviously from the Portuguese cooking and things like that, but also you had some Southwest flavors and things like that that were really beginning to take off a bit. Obviously, I spent time in Scandinavia as well, so there's a little bit of that. It's something that we spoke about when I was much younger, which was there's never a moment in life where you're not going to be learning or gathering information and building your sort of intelligence about things. And so, you know, you may live in New Orleans, but there's no reason that you can't read about a restaurant in Japan and what they're doing, or you can't read about a restaurant in Paris and what they're doing. Or go there. Or go there. And he was so instrumental in kind of putting that into me and saying, hey, look, like you have to study. You have to be a student of the game to be able to do what you want to do at a high level and be successful at it. You know, when I had conversations with him a few years ago. It was right before I left for London. We had a lovely dinner, and I was talking to him about when you opened Emeralds, where did you want to take it? What helped you get to the place that you wanted to go? And if you didn't actually get to exactly where you wanted it to be from a restaurant standpoint, obviously there's been great success throughout food television and cookbooks and things like that. But if you didn't get there fundamentally, where do you think the roadblocks were. How I sort of approached it was, let's remove these roadblocks and let's achieve this sort of original vision of Emeralds. So personally, I don't think I'm doing anything too, too different from what he did. I mean, his first cookbook is New New Orleans Cuisine, and there's a reason that it was named that. And it had the, his takes on all of these classic New Orleans dishes. And so I just kind of feel that we're doing that again, to be honest with you. Well, I'll give you an example of just one dish. When I opened Emeralds, I I created a savory cheesecake. It was a smoked salmon cheesecake. 
So we made them in cheesecake pans. We tried to slice it thin, but it was high like a cheesecake. It's delicious. It has a touch of onion and garlic and bell pepper and two different types of cheeses to sort of bind it and give it a little more smokiness. And then it had like a little dollop of creme fraiche and just this little dollop of caviar. And that was one of the original appetizers that was on the menu when we opened Emeralds. And when EJ became the chef patron, he took the idea of the smoked cheesecake, okay, made it much smaller, condensed the filling, a layer of the creme fraiche, but then on the top, it's just covered with caviar completely. And it's now become, again, a signature dish, but in a much more modified Version. It's kind of funny because it's one of the only things that if somebody goes to the seasonal menu, I'd say three out of five times someone asks if they can add the salmon cheesecake to the beginning of their seasonal menu. <laughs> it's a big glass window in the restaurant. I can see everybody. You know, I think the most Instagrammed picture that's out there is people taking a picture of this cheesecake. And I think it's just because they think I'm absolutely insane with the amount of caviar that we put on the top of this thing. And I remember the first time I gave it to him because I was telling him I was reworking the smoked salmon cheesecake. And he was like, oh, you know, you got to be careful with that. That's a classic dish. You can't mess with it too much. I was like, I I promise you it'll taste very similar. And then I brought it out to him and he just started laughing. But he was just like, what? (laughs) Like, what is this? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, it's become very, very popular. I do think that something that we've talked about at great length is the fact that maybe post-98, the restaurant stopped having a need to continuously change and develop and recreate the menu and things like that. And the space was gorgeous and modern at that time. So there was no need to renovate the space until literally this past summer. And so I like to think, and I think that he agrees with me on this, that the emeralds that is of today is likely the emeralds that had just constant evolution continued the whole time that the restaurant had been open would have happened naturally. So it's something that I think we're both very proud of, that I think we've removed our roadblocks. I like to say now, like, we kind of have all the tools that we need, and now it's down to the, the execution, you know? Yeah, I would say yes, but I would also say that life is it's constant, especially in the restaurant business, yeah. but life in general, it's just constantly roadblocks. You know, it sounds like the magazine business. Now there's yeah, just yeah, a right, exactly. exactly. You know, it's, it's like, you know, just when you thought everything was cool and we're, here we are, we're moving along and somebody floods the roof and the wall gets wet. Yeah, right? always a roller coaster ride. So EJ, outside of the restaurant, your dad is obviously very well known for his work on television. Sure. Is that something that you aspire to, or are you just really solely focused on the restaurant? Look, I mean, I, I don't think it's an aspiration. That's not something that I necessarily am absolutely eager for. I'm completely content behind a stove and behind a pass and plating and taking care of our guests every night. It's a flattering question. And obviously, he was able to accomplish a lot when it comes to food television and really put his fingerprint you know, sort of on pop culture, to be honest. But look, if the time comes around and something feels right, you know, maybe, but it's thrilling to be there every day. And that's that, to be honest. You might need a catchphrase first. Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Hard to beat that one. Well, so Emeril, you've been a teacher in a lot of ways for most of your career. And you've recently channeled a lot of that into philanthropy through the culinary garden and the teaching kitchen, which teaches kids to cook and to appreciate where their food comes from. What's been the most satisfying part of that 
work? Well, and so 21 years ago, we started the Emerald Lagasse Foundation, and that was really to mentor young people, maybe who didn't have a chance or maybe that didn't come from such a great place in life. My wife and I took it very serious about mentoring young people and trying to give them a chance, mostly in the culinary field. So the teaching garden uh, learning kitchen came about, and what I've seen it do is several things. It's taught young people how to appreciate the soil or maybe the ocean, maybe to have a little bit better respect for those elements, that they have to learn math, and they're not maybe really even realizing that they're learning math, but because they have to count or they have to follow a recipe. I see them learning about nutrition, and I've seen these gardens with these children affect their home. A lot of them come from single parent. In most of our projects, we have had the parent try to get as active as possible with the child so that we're actually teaching the parent as well. So we're teaching the parent how to cook better, how to eat better, and about nutrition without maybe even the parent even knowing it because it's being an act through children. We just had our big weekend with Carnival de Venn. We have a couple of events throughout the year, but it's the big weekend. And so we had a chance again to be around a lot of children, to be in a couple of those learning environments and those learning kitchens, to be in the garden and introduce a lot of people to see what we're actually doing and then taking a step back and going, wait a minute here, this is really pretty remarkable how this is happening with these young kids. And like I said, the foundation's 21 years old, but a lot of our programs like NOCA, or et cetera, et cetera, are 15 plus years. And now we're starting to see the results of these young people who are not so young anymore that are getting out into the field or that are getting a scholarship to go to culinary school or that are coming to work in either a colleague's restaurant or in our restaurant. Oh, do you have some that's, that have come to work for you? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh. we have kids that were eight and nine years old when they started in the program and they're now, you know, in their early 20s and are working at the restaurant. Um, I have two in particular that work at Emeralds, and there's another group that work at Merrill, and it's been phenomenal to see that take place. Take an example like Shanae. Yeah, Shanae is unbelievable. I mean, she went to NOCA on a high school level. She got a scholarship. She went to Johnson & Wales. She got out of school. She came back to work with us, left a short time just so her eyes could see other things. Long story short, she's back with us, and EJ has sort of put her under his wing, and she's months away from probably, not probably, that she's going to be a sous chef like before long. That's great. What a great legacy. And I think to have something like that, that, that lasts for such a long time, it really allows you to start seeing the dividends pay off, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, the students at NOCA, they actually did the finale dinner for Carnival de Vin. So they planned it. They wrote it. They tested it, and they executed it Saturday night for about 600 people. Oh, my gosh. And it, it was amazing. It's <laughs> good fun. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, I just have one more question for y'all. EJ, I'll start with you. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Well, I mean, because obviously I'm a chef. There is such a lovely history when it comes to all of these amazing dishes and things that have appeared that maybe, you know, obviously didn't originate in the South. You have people moving from all over, and particularly in New Orleans, you have a lot of West African influence and Vietnamese influence and things like that. So it's really quite a melting pot of unbelievable cuisine. 
And for me to be able to be a chef in the South and represent that in my own way is a very special thing. And I think, you know, it's the warmest place on the planet. And, and that doesn't mean the weather. I think it comes with the heart and the soul that people have um, and just the ability and the know-how and the want to take care of people in the warmest way possible. I think that makes our job in hospitality a lot easier when people are born with that and raised with that in the South, because you can't teach that character, that warmth. It's something that we have here, and I know that we don't take it for granted. You get down to New Orleans and people are like, wow, oh, everybody's so nice. I'm like, yeah, you're in the South. Like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, you know. Hospitality. That's it. <laughs> and Emerald, I know that you're from Massachusetts originally, but you've been in the South a long time now. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Well, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples of that. <laughs> One is that it's a really amazing cultural experience when you're in the South and the influence of family, the influence of food, the influence of just hospitality and just being nice, just being sensible and courteous. I recently went not quite to the Northeast, but I was close to the Northeast and I was in this town on the East Coast. And I said to someone, I said, where should we eat? I was with one of my chefs. And they said, well, we would tell you where you should go, but it's Southern. And I don't know if you really want to eat Southern food because you live in the South. I said, oh, no, we want to eat Southern food. If you're saying that that's the best restaurant, then we want to definitely eat Southern food. And we went, and I felt like I was right back at home. You know, we had collard greens and mac and cheese and smothered pork chops. And there's something about the heart and soul of the South, for sure. Yeah. And the food. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, Emerald and EJ Lagasse, great talking to y'all. Congrats on the restaurant. Congrats on everything. And thanks so much Thank for you. being on Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for having uh, us, Mr. Thanks Irvin. so really much. appreciate it. Really, uh, it was really a fun chat with you. And hopefully we can do it again. Yeah, and maybe in person. I'm dying to get down there, and I want to go through that whole menu. Love to have you. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Emeril and EJ Lagasse. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And as always, we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I want to thank Chrissy Tiglius, Courtney Mason, Jennifer Del Sol, Lottie Lay Marie, Jeremiah McVeigh, Michael Anifrak, and Brennan Long for everything they do to make this podcast happen. I also want to thank all of our amazing guests for sharing their stories, their traditions, and their music. And thank you for listening. We'll be back in 2024. So stay tuned and have a very happy new year.